Signs of the kingdom. Signs of the kingdom. Jesus said that when his kingdom was here, that there would be recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the captives, the year of the Lord's favor. These are signs of the kingdom, you know. There's there's signs that the disciples did, the apostles did, where people would be healed. In fact, in um, in the end of our passage today, everyone, it says everyone who came to the fellowship who was sick was healed. It was a major sign of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, since you're getting this book today, right? The one that's over there on the back table. Since you're getting this book. Great definition of the kingdom of God from, from the author. It says, the phrase kingdom of God in the scriptures is to be understood as the rule of God. That is different from our modern usage where we most always use kingdom to mean a realm over which a king rules, you know, geographic location. Kingdom in the scriptures can refer to a realm over which a king rules, but primarily, especially in the case of of the kingdom of God, it it points to the authority to rule or the sovereignty of a king. So the the idea is that as we um, recognize the authority of God to rule and his sovereign power, and we submit to him, we begin to see uh, signs of the kingdom coming into our lives. And people ask me, how are things going at New Life, people that are friends, family? And what tells the story of, how, of whether a church is doing well or not doing well? Is it attendance? Is it having hundreds of programs every month that we do? Um, to me, signs of the kingdom are what determine whether we are walking in that. And so, when I see people coming to Christ for the first time, that's a big sign of the kingdom. That's a huge, huge deal. I mean, that's especially amazing to me to think about someone that has no Jesus in their timeline, no Jesus in their family, and Jesus comes to them, they become a Christian, and forever the whole line of their family is changed. It's a sign of the kingdom. And, we, and we're seeing that at New Life, so that's encouraging. Uh, I can think of several people who've come to Christ for the first time and, and are being discipled, which is another sign of the kingdom, people, people gathering and growing in Christ together. But uh, as, as the fruit of the Spirit is made manifest in a church, as um, powerful things are happening where people are coming to Christ, people are being healed, all these types of things, these are signs of the kingdom. I'm very thankful to be healed this week. Last week I had pneumonia and um, got through a round of antibiotics. I'm thankful for Everyone who called and emailed, I think I heard there was an audible gasp. Pastor Nathan is sick. <gasps> so uh, people were trying to determine whether I was alive all day. It turns out that I can get sick too. But pneumonia is no joke. And, uh, my, and Greg delivered an anointed sermon, and Jeremy led us in musical worship, uh, which was awesome because Pastor Corey, who usually has a microphone, very sick, can't really sing right now, but he, he also got sick. At any rate, uh, very thankful for the anointing that came and did all that ministry and for the, the soup that some of you gave me that was healing soup. Uh, but healing, healing is a sign of the kingdom. So at different times in our history as a church, we've had times where people are prayed for and they're physically healed. Uh, I was hanging out with some friends from this church in their, in their living room. We were praying and talking and... Uh, there was a, a, just a drastic story of healing that, that uh, this gentleman shared with me. And it was, 
an instantaneous moment where the Spirit of God met him and he was healed. And it was that time when there was just stuff happening in his life, God was working in his life, and it was a sign of the kingdom. Pretty cool stuff. But in our, uh, in our passage today, we see some of these signs of the kingdom that we're going to be in Acts 4, 32. And if you would like a Bible, we have extras, and the ushers can bring you one. So if you want a Bible to read along, you can raise your hand and someone will bring you one. This was a sermon that I was going to preach a couple, you know, last week uh, as part two of my uh, sermon where I talked about the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant and all, all that happened with Uzzah and, all, and um, living in light of um, God's holiness and, and rever- reverence for him. Um, this is going to be part two, but God's been showing me some, some more stuff this week as I've been in a delirious fog. <laughs> and one of the things God really put his finger on for me, and maybe this is a sermon in itself next week, is just the signs, like reading this text and saying, you know, what are the signs of the kingdom that this text is talking about? Just noticing those things. Because I think that that's useful for us in that um, when we see these same types of things happening in our lives and in our church, as I've kind of outlined today, uh, we can be sure that God is working. And it's a very, very cool thing. So, uh, we're in Acts 4.32. We're going to read all the way to 5.16. We're covering a lot of ground today. And this is one of, the, one of the more difficult passages in the book of Acts. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That's a big deal. They had unity. It says in some translations they were in one accord, which uh, Honda should have used for a sales pitch. They were all crammed together in one accord. They were in one heart and mind. Listen to this. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. This is not communism. Uh, These are people that began to look at their community as family. And so there wasn't a poor person among them because everyone was looking out for one another. And people... You know, the Bible, the Bible teaches, for instance, uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And it also says to love your neighbor as yourself. So these two things are big deal signs of the kingdom. These people, it's not that they didn't value personal property and possessions. It's that it wasn't of primary importance to them anymore. So people just, their, their, their love for God, their love for their neighbor uh, caused them to not look at their, their stuff as their own stuff, but to share with everyone who had a need. Big deal. That's not a typical human trait, right? Right? <laughs> Usually we, we kind of hoard things. A sign of the kingdom. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had a need. So if you have a ski chalet, or you have a camp, like a lot of people do here on Secondaga or Lake George, 
people were liquidating secondary properties. They still had homes. Uh, but they were liquidating secondary properties and laying that voluntarily, again, not mandated by anyone, laying it at the apostles' feet. And uh, then it was distributed to folks who had needs. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I didn't really think about it before, but this guy, Joseph, his nickname was Barnabas. They just called him that. And it means son of encouragement, literally. So this guy was extremely pastoral, loving. When he came in the room, they just gave him this nickname, son of encouragement. That's not bad. That's a pretty good nickname. So this is an example of someone who was uh, living out the kingdom. He sold uh, this property, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. Now, Here we have someone, obviously it wasn't mandated that people liquidate their properties and give the money to the disciples. Here's a couple who both willingly, and the property was at their disposal, they sold the property and they gave some of it to the apostles, intentionally withholding it and lying to the apostles to try to promote themselves socially. So here we have trying trying to raise themselves up. This is somewhat of the opposite of of Barnabas', Barnabas's motivation. Barnabas' motivation was just simply to uh, give to everyone who had a need. These guys did this for show, clearly. And Peter says that. He says, you know, this was your property before you sold it. And after you sold, you could have done anything you wanted with your money. No one's t- telling you what to do. But you decided not only to sell your property, but to only give some of it to God and, and deceiving intentionally to promote your own Self and to make yourself look better in, in, the, in the company. And when Ananias heard this, that he'd not just lied to human beings but to God, he fell down and died. Verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Pretty heartbreaking. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spear of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out also. Now at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. 
And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. All of them. It's great power. So here we have this amazing account uh, of the power of God right after a very severe dealing with God of an issue uh, in, in that early church. So you can see why this is a difficult passage uh, for people to, to grapple with. Um, this is a very severe thing that happened in the history of the church. I was reading a book years ago, and uh, so I went to see this speaker who was sharing his theology at a conference in western New York. And I wouldn't say he was an orthodox Christian speaker, but he was sort of kind of on the edge. But the subject matter was of interest to me, and I wanted to pick his brain about some of the concepts that he put forth in the book. And he, his whole point was, uh, in the Old Testament, God dealt with people in a certain way, and then after Christ, no longer. No longer. And being someone who believes that Jesus and God are one, and the Holy Spirit is one, you know, I was having a hard time reconciling all that together. So the question I had was, what about Ananias and Sapphira? And I really got no satisfactory answer about that. Um, So anytime, you know, someone saying God doesn't care about that kind of thing anymore, God doesn't work in those ways anymore, or God changed his mind and God actually changed, which is what this speaker was saying, he was saying essentially God grew, God changed, God matured, and that God had moved beyond his primitive ways. Um, anytime I hear that kind of thing, I have a lot of questions. Because it says in the Bible, I am the Lord, I do not change. Uh, God doesn't learn stuff. God does experience everything that we go through. He is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And he's uh, present in a special way in, within us. So he experiences, along with us, uh, this, the, the wide scope of human um, depravity, wickedness, and also the most beautiful things. But God doesn't learn. God does not change. God is not a personality who is underdeveloped. He is the personality. He is every single thing that we see of variety in the world All of those things are contained in God. No surprises, you know. Uh, This is our God. So, interestingly, this week, a friend of mine from college who has become a, he's becoming a noteworthy writer, and he's becoming a noteworthy speaker, and he's written, he's on his second book now. He put some things on Facebook that interested me. And so I, I said, you know, this is really interesting. And he said, well, I'd like to, talk to you on Skype, because he's in a different country. And I wanted to kind of talk to him about Ananias and Sapphira, because he's leaning in that same kind of direction. I really wanted to, I honestly wanted to get his take on the story, as someone who is thinking through uh, these difficult concepts. 
And uh, I told him, you know, I like seeing your discussion online, but just so you know, I don't do that on Facebook. I don't do politics on Facebook. I don't do theological conversation on Facebook. Because even if you're an honest seeker of truth and you're trying to get answers from, a, from, a, from people or, or understand how people think, you get attacked so mercilessly online. Uh, so even if you're an honest seeker of truth, you put a que- an honest question and someone jumps on you. You're so primitive. You're so conservative. You're so liberal. Whatever it is, you just get beat around. So talking to him on the phone was nice. And his whole thing was, is, uh, we know what love is. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. It does not boast. We also know uh, that Christ was, you know, he was, non, he was nonviolent. He was a loving, nonviolent man. And, and sure, people always say, well, he made the, the whip in the temple and he was driving people out with it, you know. But he wasn't whipping people. He was just making a, he was making a scene. He was not a violent man. Like a... Uh, a sheep before its shearers is silent. You know, Jesus went to fulfill his mission. And like a, bruised, like a bruised reed, you know, like a wick, you know, this is, this is kind of characterizes Jesus. So his whole thing was, we know what love is as defined by the Bible. We know who Jesus is. And we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, God cannot act in any way contrary to love, as outlined in the Bible, he can't, for instance, put people to death, as in this passage, which seems pretty clear to me that's what it's saying. Would you agree with that? You know, he, he, he doesn't work in those ways because he's love and it's, not, it's contradictory. And uh, I said, well, what's your, what's your theory on this? And I said, and Sapphira passage. And he said, well, I think that, um, I think that Ananias had a heart attack. And then his wife had a heart attack. I was like, well, you know, people that live together often both eat unhealthy. And you know, <laughs> anyway, you know, um, or, or he said maybe the community put them to death. And uh, those weren't, again, those were not satisfactory answers. But but I, I respect him because he's trying to he's trying to make sense of a very difficult question: the problem of pain and suffering and how and reconciling God. And, and by the time I was done talking to him, he had, a, he had a funny little thing where he said, your theory is the God is a murderer theory. And I said, I think, it all, I think it all comes down to how you view what God did in Christ and what that means for God. We, knew, we know that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, but Jesus isn't all that God is. When we look at Jesus, we can be sure that this is, this is who God is, but it's not all that God is. It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus emptied himself, being found as an appearance as a man, and he, he humbled himself into death, even death on a cross, uh, to save us. But the whole picture of who God is um, is not, you know, there, there, there's a greater picture that, that we can see, and Jesus uh, was, was a part of that. And the, the, other, the other thing that came to mind is, when it comes to authority, uh, if God puts people to death, okay, is that different from if a person chooses to kill another person? And the answer is, in my mind, yes, because God is the, the authority figure. God is a higher authority than humans, and it's not arbitrary. It's specific, it's for a purpose, and it's believe it or not, loving. 
in this case in the church, I think this was, a, this was God expressing love to a community by doing this to protect this early church. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough thing to think about, but God is greater. God is all authoritative. Uh, God is love, but like we saw two weeks ago uh, with the Ark of the Covenant, God said, don't touch the holy things. He said, don't transport the ark anyway except for with poles. And what did they do? They put the ark into a cart and started pushing it around. And then it started, they stumbled, and this man reached out and touched it, and he was struck down. Because that was just the, that's just the way it was. God warned them what would happen, and then it happened. But God did not murder Uzzah. Uh, it was just what happened in that situation. God said what would happen, and it happened. And God has the authority, in my mind, to do that. Uh, when, my, when my friend, uh, I, I, I Facebook messaged him and said, did you, did you really just call that my theory that God is a murderer theory? And, he, and then he had this awesome thing where he wrote this whole really nice version of it, which I thought was really good. Uh, but my whole point is, God is the high authority. Uh, God... Um, the, the kingdom of God is the rule of God, and it's recognizing the sovereignty of God and the all-powerful nature of God. And when people walk in reverence for who God is, certainly they have nothing to fear, but when people start taking, uh, taking things for granted and, and just stepping out uh, in a way that is contrary to what God would will, you know, God has all authority. One of the things that we kind of miss when we start kind of dumbing down and trying to contain the Almighty God into this small container that we can manage is that God is uh, every sin that we do, of course, the penalty, the wages for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So, you know, when it comes down to it, some of us read a story like this and we say, you know, we don't really believe that sin is worthy of death. But the fact is that the Bible says that it is. But it also says in First John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. You know, God is incredibly patient. But we have to, I think that we have to, when we look at sin, when we look at um, forgiveness, and we look at walking with God, we have to keep in mind both the severity of sin, that's a serious matter. I mean, people die from sin all the time, just natural consequences. You know, it kills people, uh, honestly. Um, but we also need to look at the mercy and patience of God because when you, when you realize how severe sin is and how, uh, how damaging it is to both individuals and to society, uh, then when God is merciful, when you see the mercy of God, when you see the cross, it just magnifies the truth of what God actually did. The ultimate authority figure uh, God didn't wait around for people to come to him. God decided, these people, uh, I want the people for myself. These people are constantly going against everything I say. So what am I going to do? Punish, am I going to punish them for that? No, I'm going to go down myself in Christ. That's what, that's what was happening in Christ. God emptied himself and be, became found in appearance as a man. And, and God took the severe punishment for sin that is due to all of us on himself. 
He took it on himself. So that through faith in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, we can draw near to God and not worry about judgment for sin, condemnation, uh, all those kinds of things. But we must never forget that sin is a severe issue that God dealt with severely, and we must not take for granted the gift of God that he gave to us. We must live in reverence and, and for God. So having this, I think that the image of God, um, the, the image of God that is more complete, when you see his holiness, when you see his sovereignty, his might, his power, but you also see the greatness of his mercy. Um, and you realize that it's not just, the Bible doesn't just say, you know, the wages of sin is death lightly, but it's saying this is severe, but the gift of God is eternal life. I think when you really live in light of a big God like that, and you really see how big his mercy and grace is, it changes the way you walk for, in your life from day to day. And it makes you live, uh, live differently. And, uh, and it's something that, I think when you have a small image of God, you have this managed God, or um, the fire insurance God who, you know, he forgives me of my sins and I'm, going to, I, I'm not going to worry about it until I'm on my deathbed kind of thing. You have this small image of God. It's very damaging to you and to, and to your walk with God. So this, this story, uh, though it is, in, in my mind, it's a reasonable story what happened. The wages of sin is death, and this happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I also like to recognize that this is not really a typical story uh, in, 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 in the world. This is not a typical story at all. And to understand why this severe thing happened, you have to understand that this, this fellowship of Christian believers uh, that was just being called the church at this time was replacing the temple. It was replacing the temple at this time, and there was great power happening in the church at this time. And, and, and as we talked about two weeks ago, you know, the high priest would go into the, ho- into the holy place and then into the holy of holies in the temple one time a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the people. And if he didn't quite get that right, they had a rope around his ankle to drag the poor guy out. Um, you know, it was like a serious business, the holy of holies. And so what God was doing in the church was a brand new thing. Uh, and God, Jesus had cursed the temple in uh, Mark 11, he said, you know, you're not bearing fruit, and so you're done. You think about the cursing of the fig tree. That whole little story is the story of Jesus cursing the temple and saying, you were originally supposed to be a place where people could have their sins atoned for, where people could draw near to God in the prescribed way. But what it's become is a den of robbers. It's become a place where um, political, religious people are essentially uh, keeping a system going that is for their benefit in enrichment. It become the contrary to, to God's will. And so God removed his blessing from the temple. And, you know, just a little bit after Christ, the temple was destroyed completely. It's never been rebuilt. Okay? So uh, Jesus, Jesus was saying, this is not the temple, but my new temple is going to be in the church. And I just really believe that this story of Ananias and Sapphira is an illustration of how when God is, is manifested and when God is doing these great and mighty things, I mean, we read in the passage in verse 16, everyone who came to them were healed. They, they were having, bringing people out just to get caught by like Peter's shadow. I mean, think about that. Shadow healing. That's cool. 
I mean, can you imagine the power of God in this? And it, it was God's sign that my, my new temple is with the church. Okay? And I believe this story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not a typical story. We don't see this stuff happening anymore in the New Testament. I don't think you need to live in fear of it happening to you. Okay? I just want to make that clear. The, the church was, was the new temple, and God was saying, if you want, I want to make my power manifested to the world. I want to make my presence manifested to the world. I want to heal people. I want the signs of the kingdom to be present. I want people to come to me. I want uh, people to come to salvation. I want people to be discipled, to be baptized, to grow in Christ, to share the good news of the salvation that I have brought by my own sacrifice. I give my full blessing to this. But if you want to have that kind of church, you've got to be reverent. I'm telling you, there's no room for this kind of junk in the church. These Ananias and Sapphira, at first glance, you're like, did they lie? Were they just, you know, did they, what, you know, what actually happened there? Yeah, they lied. And when you look really carefully, it was, they had no, they, they didn't really have as a motive giving to the church to take care of people's needs. Their motive, their motive was to make themselves look good in the community, to lift up themselves. You can't do that in the temple of God. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. He meant it. And he heralded Christ. And um, when John the Baptist was, was beheaded, Jesus heard about it, no, destroyed him. Because this, this is a man who, who lived to exalt God and lay himself down low. But if the message I get from this passage is, if you want to have the signs of the kingdom in your church fellowship, if you want to see the healings and the salvations, and you want to see the impact on the world and discipleship and the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the sovereignty of God in place in your church, you need to take, take sin seriously and take God seriously. And I think that in this case, with these people, because of the nature of what they were doing and the time of the church was being formed here, this is the first passage that calls it the church, okay? First time that Ecclesia is used of the church. Before that, it was called the way. But this is the first time they call it the church. If you want to be the church, you have to take the holiness of God seriously. You need to have both an understanding of the severity of sin and what it deserves, and, and so that you can understand the mercy and the grace of God, so that you can walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. And uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith. But I just, it scares me to think about the way that people walk with God, like an accoutrement to their life, like an accessory. Um, we, should, we should have a healthy reverence for God where when we are in a pattern of sin that we are just comfortable walking in, that we're just a little nervous. <laughs> okay? I think that. Now, some people are hyper-conscience people, and they're going to be, oh, guilt and shame, my childhood bad church experience is coming back to haunt me with Pastor Nathan here. Okay? But this is not like that. We need to live with a reverent, a healthy reverence for God that understands both the severity of sin so that we can understand the greatness of the divine mercy so that we can be transformed by that perspective and walk in the new way of the Spirit, putting to death sin, walking in Christ. And that is, 
in my opinion, the only way they were going to see the power. Everyone wants the power. You know, the prosperity gospel is, you know, this whole idea of uh, God just blessing you, and God's will is just to make you prosperous, and, and, and uh, it's all about you in many ways. But the true gospel that brings salvation understands the depth of the mercy of God and thus responds in such a way as to bring about the kingdom of God on earth in their life. Um, I think about when the, the sinful woman came to Jesus. I think it's funny when the Bible says sinful woman or sinful man because everyone's a sinful woman. <laughs> so I just, what, what the Bible is trying to say in these stories is um, this is someone that people considered sinful as opposed to, you know, themselves, which, you know, no, not so much. But uh, this woman, uh, she, the woman of the night, you know, she breaks this alabaster jar of perfume and puts it on Jesus and washes her, 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 his feet with her hair. And uh, the reason she did this was largely because the host who invited Jesus into his home had not provided him with the customary foot washing that, was, that they did in that culture at all. He'd done nothing. Uh, but this woman had this reverence because she knew that Jesus could forgive her and did forgive her. And so she, she did this beautiful act. And Jesus says something so remarkable. He goes, he who has been forgiven little loves little. You know, he who has forgiven much loves much. See, this perspective of both the severity of sin and the depth of God's mercy, this is what makes you love God and love other people. It's what gives you humility in your walk. Without that perspective, without that reverent perspective of God's, of God's power, God's holiness, and God's sovereignty, we can't really receive the love and grace of God, and therefore we can't be transformed by it, and we can't love God, and we can't love other people well. But the, the problem with that situation is that, nor, that uh, those, those commandments, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, it sums up the entire law of the Old Testament. So that's the one thing we need to do, but it's the one thing that we can't do when we don't have the right perspective. So we love the power of God. Of course, I want to see more power. But I am cognizant as your pastor in my personal life that my personal holiness is going to make a difference in this, and, and, and yours is too. And we need to take it seriously. Um, I'd like to read a passage to close, and I'll invite the worship team forward now. This is 1 Peter 1, 13 to 20. When I read this passage, I was just uh, blown away by how it summarizes uh, what God's will is for us. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. 
Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, all of their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We were not redeemed with perishable things. We are redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says next. Therefore, love God and love others well. If you don't understand, if you don't understand the holiness of God, you can't understand the mercy of God. If you don't understand the mercy of God, you can't be humble. If you can't be humble, you can't love God. And you can't love other people. So today as we worship the Lord in song, Let's just position our hearts um, before the throne of God and pray that prayer of John the Baptist. May I decrease, may you increase so that you can be glorified so I can have the real work of Christ in my life and not a facade or a show uh, where I'm trying to sell property and make myself look good. Um, Join me in prayer as we close in song. Heavenly Father, um, I just wanted to say on behalf of this church, I'm not sure how much agreement I have, but Lord, I want, to, I want this church to be a place where the authentic work of Christ is happening, where the signs of the kingdom are present, where your power is here, where people are physically healed here, where people are coming to Christ here, where people are being released from captivity here. Um, I want to see your kingdom come and your will be done in this realm, even as it's done perfectly in your realm on earth as it is in heaven. Um, So Lord, I pray for that. And I pray that in order to get there, Lord, that we would do a heart check and look at our own hearts. Help us to come to this place where we can say, we love you. And when we say that, what what we think about is the forgiveness and the mercy and grace you've shown us for our sins. Uh, And we just feel the love of you taking our place, spotless lamb. And with that perspective, allow us to love each other, to consider other people better than ourselves, to look to other people's interests above our own, to be like Christ in this way. We lift these things up in the name of Christ.